This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore with episode 463, the first highlights edition of 2023. We'll revisit conversations with New York State historian Devin Lander, Jerry Snyder of Historic Amsterdam League, author John Sorensen on When Mommy Was a Commie, Alan Mattis on a jet bomber crash in the Adirondacks, and Mark DeWinziak on Edgar Allan Poe. We begin with 1920 Schenectady stories with Bill Buell. Hi, I'm Bill Buell. I'm the Schenectady County Historian. Uh, I was appointed in May of 2019, the day after I retired from a 41-year career of journalism at the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. Uh, I'm here today to talk about Schenectady in the 1920s. It was uh, just an incredible decade. So much going on in the world at that time, and there was an awful lot going on in Schenectady as well. As soon as I heard this as the topic, I said, well, yes, of course. Uh, This is when General Electric is booming, and all kinds of uh, important scientists have come to live and work in, in Schenectady, like Charles Steinmetz. Uh, And so I guess, well, let's start with the hotel. They decided they needed a hotel. And and, uh, did they build the Hotel Van Curler? Yep, they built the Hotel Van Curler. It opened in uh, May of 1925. That's when uh, GE was, you know, had 25,000 to 30,000 employees. American Locomotive Company had about 10,000 to 15,000 at that point. So things are going, and people are coming into Schenectady to, to do business. And we had some fine hotels, but we didn't have, uh, I don't know, a, a Class A hotel. So they wanted to build a new one. They built it right by the Western Gateway Bridge, which is another big event that happens in the 1920s. But it was definitely something Schenectady needed and become a first-class city. That building, not the hotel, but that building is still there. Now home to Schenectady County Community College, or I should probably say SUNY Schenectady. They've changed the name uh, since I started going to school there way back when. It's a great old building. It's a great building for classrooms. Uh, It became the college in 1969, I want to say, off the top of my head. But it had a great 40, 45-year career serving Schenectady. Uh, uh, Some famous people stayed there, as did Ronald Reagan, but well before he was president, doing commercials for General Electric. Uh, So it's got a great history. It's a great old building, and it's doing great right now as a home to the uh, college. And you mentioned uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Didn't he come to Schenectady because he, uh, I mean, they sponsored his uh, one of his television shows, right? And so he'd do the, sometimes do the ads here, or maybe he only did it once. I think he, he might have come more than once. He did um, commercials for GE Appliances at some point. But, yeah, the, the, I think the main reason or the primary cause for him being here was um, he had a show that was on uh, NBC, I want to say. They were just doing promos for that. And, you know, everything kind of, I guess that's what impressed me about Schenectady in the 20s, everything sort of fit together. I mean, GE is growing. The uh, radio station, WGY, 
uh, one of the pioneer radio stations in America, is also booming, or it's uh, you know kind of the modern uh, wonder. Eventually, there'll be a television station attached. But in looking into the history of WGY, you frequently run across uh, they're having some sort of big event. And, of course, the big event's held at the Hotel Van Curler. It was um, on February 20th, 1922, at 7.47 p.m., announcer Colin Hager announces to the world, this is station WGY the first radio station in New York. And what he said was he explained that the W is for wireless, the G is for General Electric, and Y is for the last letter in Schenectady, which is kind of interesting. My name is Devin Lander. I am the New York State historian here at the State Museum in Albany. And I'm here to talk about the 250th planning that is taking place both at the national level and at the state level, and at some point at the local level, as we move forward to the commemoration of the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution, which is quickly coming up in uh, 2025 here in New York State. Uh, the big date, of course, is 2026 and commemoration of 1776, but then also uh, looking at the, uh, the revolutionary era up to and including uh, 1783, so for mm -hmm. New York State would be 2033, uh, and really talking about the kind of 250 years of history that has happened here in New York since the founding of our country. Devin Lander is with us. He is New York State historian. You've been in the, that position now for how many years? Well, I'm going into, let's see, uh, seven. my seventh year will be in May of, of 23. I was hired in 2016, so uh, uh, it's been almost seven years. And you said that the big project, and it was when we interviewed you last year, just about a year ago, it was also a pending big project, is the uh, 250th anniversary of America and the American Revolution. What plans have been made? What are, what are we going to do? Well, the state has uh, finally passed a, a bill creating a commission. Uh, that passed in February of last year and was signed by Governor Hochul. Uh, so that really gives an apparatus and a, a structure for a, a statewide commission that will help facilitate planning and programming at the local level across the state. And the commission hasn't met yet, and there's a reason for that, and that's because the some of the appointed members have not been named yet. Um, that's slowly happening. The Senate majority, which received three appointments, has made their appointments. Uh, Senate minority uh, receives one and they have made theirs. The assembly minority has made their one appointment, and we're still waiting on Governor Hochul and the assembly majority to make their appointments to the commission. So the commission is made up of 13 appointed members, as well as several state agency uh, commissioners and heads. Uh, the state historian is named the, the head of our tourism apparatus in the state, uh, the Isle of New York campaign, and the Office of General Services. And the commission is co-chaired by the commissioner of the Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation, which oversees, of course, our state historic sites, as well as the State Education Department commissioner, which is the person I work for. The State Museum, Library, and Archives are part of uh, the state ed department here in New York State. So those are the two co-chairs. So it's really a uh, an initiative to uh, try to 
coordinate again and, and facilitate uh, planning uh, at the at the regional and local level. There is a lot going on at the local level as well. More and more local commissions or committees uh, are are popping up. For example, uh, Saratoga County has named its own commission. This is Jerry Snyder of the Historic Amsterdam League. And we're going to talk a little bit about how the league got started uh, back in 2010 and what our plans are uh, for the coming year and uh, some of the projects that we're working on here. Twelve years since we got going. We've accomplished a lot, I believe, and uh, hopefully we've got a long ways to go and a lot more that we can do here. Jerry Snyder is one of the founders of Historic Amsterdam League, and we're going to talk about all those topics. 2010 was when the league started. That was some time after the book. You and the other uh, co-founder, Robert Von Hasselen, uh, put out a history book about Amsterdam, did you not? Yes, uh, yes, we did back in, uh, and that was that was kind of one of the impetus for getting the the entire league started. Back about 2003, I was uh, looking through the newspaper one night, and there was a little article in there about a gentleman that was trying to get a um, model project with model railroading started here to uh, model the city of Amsterdam. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing because I had been involved with some uh, of model railroading many many years ago when I had spare time, I thought, ah, that would well, be interesting. So uh, I went to the meeting, and uh, nobody else showed up, including <laughs> the gentleman who had organized the meeting. And uh, come to find out, they had canceled it, which I didn't know. A few weeks later, they did finally get a meeting together, and uh, several people showed up, and they organized a group, and uh, they needed somebody to do historic research. And I said, well, I've lived here all my life. I'll uh, start looking into it. And uh, Long story short, the group formed, lasted about two years until they lost the place where they uh, they were going to do the modeling work, and uh, the group dissolved. But I kind of got hooked at that point and uh, started getting more and more involved in uh, the history of things. Discovered postcards were a good source of information and pictures. Started collecting those. Once I started collecting those and discovered eBay online, I really got into it and uh, started getting very involved. As I say, I've lived here all my life and discovered a lot more about the history of the place than I had realized. And when Rob Van Haslin became the city historian, I decided I'm going to show him my collection. So I walked into his office one day with my binders of postcards and showed them to him, and things kind of snowballed from there. And uh, he at the time was also working for one of the book large chain book stores in the area, and uh, he had some contacts, and uh, he got in touch with one of the publishers. We ended up producing a book on uh, postcard history of Amsterdam, and uh, things took off from there. What year was that? I hate to stick you with a question like that, but it was before 2010, obviously. Yeah, we, uh, I, I started collecting uh, postcards probably, oh, as I say, the project started about 2003. I started really getting into things 2004, 2005, collecting cards. By the time Rob became historian, I think that was about 2008. And uh, by that time, I had about 400 cards of Amsterdam and uh, showed him my collection. And uh, we started in earnest working on the book in 2009 and got it published in 2010. In fact, I've heard good things about how well the book sold. I think 
uh, from Dan Weaver, who uh, operated a, a bookstore at the time in Amsterdam, the Book Hound, and also the folks at the Walter Elwood Museum. Uh, you, you sold a lot of copies of this uh, of, of this book right, right, pretty much right off the bat. Yeah, it, uh, it was received very well, and uh, a lot of the postcards that we had, it was interesting. Uh, I myself had never realized how uh, popular postcards were in the early 1900s, but so many local uh, scenes that were out there, and uh, uh, people really, really enjoyed it. And it was interesting, and each postcard had a little paragraph with it that described it, and uh, uh, there was a lot of scenes of things that were long gone by then, obviously, and uh, a lot of things that disappeared during the arterial projects and everything. So it uh, it went quite well, and like most things, it, you know, it it took off real well and then tapered off. And occasionally they still sell one here and there, but <laughs> obviously, you know, the time gone by, it it tapered off quite a bit. But uh, it uh, yeah, we we had our initial initial sales down at Dan's uh, when he was down on East Main Street, and uh, uh, it, w- it was received very well, so uh, people still people still comment on it. And, you know, you know, gee, I never knew type thing, and uh, you know, people enjoy it. So it was great. Historic Amsterdam League has held neighborhood bus tours in Amsterdam, produced history booklets, and produced Ghosts of the Past, a walking tour with local people playing some of the folks who are buried at Green Hill Cemetery. This is John Sorensen. I'm the author of When Mommy Was a Commie, uh, a funny historical fiction based in Schenectady, New York, uh, during the early 1950s when the Red Scare was its scariest. And uh, at that time, Joe McCarthy, of all people, came to Albany to grill the uh, union at General Electric, ended up getting several union workers fired, and switching the union from communist to non-communist. My story is about a fictional union leader who sees the dark clouds on the horizon and knows he has to get rid of this uh, connection to the communists and sets up a, a, a plot to try to annoy the, the, the members of his union because he feels the communists are as annoying as anybody, but the members don't seem to understand that. So he sets up <laughs> a plot that tries to encourage the communists and only ends up making it worse, partly because his wife, well-known rabble-rouser, who is secretly a communist spy or would like to be considered one, they marry and have a son, and uh, it only gets worse when she thinks that uh, the plot that she's discovered of Milo's is an actual attempt to encourage communism. So with everyone working at cross purposes and Joe McCarthy arriving soon, uh, I hope it's a, a story that people will enjoy and, and learn, frankly, about the Red Scare and because it's based on actual events of that time, both in the Albany-Schenectady area, but also throughout the country. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore. When Mommy Was a Commie is uh, John Sorensen's novel set in Schenectady, in large part, in the early 1950s, inspired episodes that took place during the Red Scare, America's spy war with Russia. Author John Sorensen previously was a newspaper reporter uh, for the Schenectady Gazette, Buffalo News, and New York Daily News. 
He also worked many years in media relations in the state service. He worked for a consumer protection agency of New York State and also the state university. And at the state university for a while, he he was my boss. We'll uh, talk about that in a moment. You're starting to tell us about the gist of your your story when mommy was a, a commie. Uh, this uh, flamboyant woman who is a communist or thinks she is is called Martha, the Red Flame of New York. Tell us a little bit more about her. Martha uh, was traveling around the country giving speeches on behalf of the Communist Party and being very popular, but then she was asked to go under underground, undercover as such, and marry uh, the union leader, Milo Milwaukee, I call him, <laughs> in Schenectady. And uh, Milo uh, doesn't want anything to do with the communists, and he uh, urges Ma- Martha, his wife, to uh, leave the party, and she uh, promises to, but like any good communist, she uh, doesn't always tell the truth. And so uh, she remains active and behind the scenes and so i try to have some fun in the story by having uh, both uh, milo and martha working at cross purposes uh when it comes to the communists in schenectady all of it within the background of uh the red scare which truly was it's it's hard to bob it's hard to write uh anything as wild and as funny as some of the things that actually happened For instance, there was a company in pittsburgh that produced anti-communist bubblegum cards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the Associated Press at one time kind of shows both the scariness of of, uh, the times, but also something of the innocence of that time period. They they wrote a 12-part series that appeared weekly called What to Do If A-Bombs Come, and the advice reads like Marjorie Merriweather Post giving uh, advice on how to set up a, a living room that will survive a nuclear attack. It's all kind of silly and scary at the same time. And I begin each chapter with an epigraph that is based on some real event to help put the context of the the fictional story in place. This is Alan Mattis. I'm going to talk about my new book, Bright Peak Elegy, a story about Cold War nuclear deterrence and ultimate sacrifice. The subject is about a strategic air command B-47 bomber that was returning to Plattsburgh Air Force Base from a training mission at Fort Drum and crashed at the summit of Wright Peak on January 16, 1962, at 2 a.m. The plane completely disintegrated on hitting the rock ledge there at about 450 miles an hour. All four crewmen on board perished, and... The remains of one were never recovered. It's a very sad event. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Alan Mattis is author of Right Peak Elegy, a story of Cold War nuclear deterrence and ultimate sacrifice. The book tells the story of a U.S. B-47 jet bomber flying at 400 miles an hour, coming back from a practice bombing run in wind-driven snow and freezing rain near Plattsburgh. The plane crashed into Wright Peak in the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York in January 1962. The book, by the way, was published in uh, 2022. We'll have more on uh, author Alan Mattis in a few minutes. I imagine, Alan, you have uh, climbed Wright Peak, have you? Oh, yeah several times. 
I, I've been climbing in that region for about 50 years. Uh, it's my annual fall hike. And the accident took place during the winter, and it took place when this plane was based in uh, Plattsburgh. There, there is no air base in Plattsburgh anymore, is that correct? That's correct. Um, it basically was closed in 1995 as uh, an action taken to uh, consolidate uh, Air Force base operations and uh, reduce the budget. I must confess, I'm, you know, I don't know a great deal about uh, aviation. Uh, I've heard of B-52s, but I'd never heard of B-47s. Uh, what, what kind of plane was that? Well, that was the first true jet engine bomber. It was uh, conceptually designed around 1943, or at least starting at that date, in response to continual mauling of uh, propeller-driven bombers uh, when they were bombing German industrial sites. And what they needed was something faster, and the conceptual studies indicated that a jet-powered bomber could fly at 600 miles an hour versus the 350 that was uh, within the propeller-driven bomber capability. Did the B-47 work out well, or was this sort of a problem child for the uh, U.S. forces? Well, it depends on how you look at it. The B-47 fleet, which at one time numbered about 15 active planes, including 1,300 bombers and some others that were devoted to reconnaissance and electronic countermeasures, did a good job of saving the uh, saving off the Soviet Union efforts for expansion and world domination. But it came at a cost, and the cost uh, was in terms of 10% of the fleet over a period from 1951 to 1967 crashing and being totally destroyed at a cost of about 500 lives, uh, mostly crewmen but a few civilians. So it was, um, put it another way, it achieved the objective of keeping the Soviet Union at bay and probably was the best choice that the Air Force could make, but it was costly. Really? And again, I plead ignorance. I'd not heard of these other crashes, but there were similar crashes to what happened to the uh, bomber that was heading for Plattsburgh. Look at the records, and there there's a plentiful amount of data available on the crashes. There were five other crashes that might be um, categorized as controlled flights into terrain, where a B-47 basically collided with a mountain. They started in the west in Hawaii and then migrated uh, eastward. If you look at the records, uh, there was one at... Uh, Palomar Mountain in California, right next to the 200-inch uh, telescope that's still there. Uh, there were uh, crashes in Idaho and Man- Montana and one in Vermont. Hello, this is Mark DeWitziak. Uh, I'm the author of the recently published A Mystery of Mystery: The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm the author or editor of about 25 books, and this is the first one that I've written about uh, Mr. Poe. 
it, it may seem like a bit of a stretch for me uh, in some ways because the five of my books are about Mark Twain. I guess if there is an author I'm most associated with, it's Mark Twain. I've, I've done a, a fair amount of work on, I guess, what you'd call the spooky side of the street. Uh, one of my books is on Dracula. One is on the Night Stalker series with Darren McGavin and reporter Carl Kolshak, who always seemed to have a supernatural case that he was working on. I did a book on the Twilight Zone. It was that book, the Twilight Zone, which kind of led to this book. I was uh, That book was published by St. Martin's in 2017. It had done uh, fairly well. It's called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. It's kind of a, a look at the, the series through the moral lessons and the uh, the parables that the Twilight Zone told. It, it struck me that each Twilight Zone episode was a parable and had a moral behind it. And I thought, well, if you could extract that, you'd have a, a wonderful book of life lessons. So that book was mm -hmm. in the nature of 50 conversations, and it did pretty well. And you always kind of have that next conversation with your publisher when, you're, when, the, when a book does well about, okay, well, What's the next book going to be? I had this conversation with an editor at St. Martin's, and uh, it was a very nice conversation, except for one thing, which was that uh, every book I suggested to them, they didn't like. And then every book they suggested to me, I didn't like. So I, I thought we were, go we were heading towards sort of tabling the conversation and picking it up at another time. And we were just about wrapping it up and getting off the phone when the editor said, what about Edgar Allan Poe? That sort of snapped my attention, and I said, uh, what made you say that? And the editor said, well, if you look at your, your resume, it seems like that would be a very good fit. You've done books on mystery, like your book on the Columbo series. You've done books on horror subjects. You've done a, books on great literary figures. It seems if you put all those things together that you've written about, the answer comes back Edgar Allan Poe. In A Mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe, author Mark DeWidziak investigate the facts of Edgar Allan Poe's strange death in Baltimore and revisits the moments of his storm-tossed life. A very interesting story about how you came to Poe as a topic. And tell us about, uh, you focus on Poe's death. Uh, can you uh, review the what is known about Poe's death for us? This is what we know, which is that in late September 1849, he was in Richmond, Virginia. He had spent the summer in Richmond. He left Richmond, and his goal, his ultimate destination, was to get back to New York. Uh, he was living in a cottage in what is now the Bronx, uh, not too far away from Fordham. And he, he was living there for the last few years of his life. And so when he left Richmond, he was heading back towards the cottage in New York. For some reason, he, he gets on a steamer in Richmond, and he gets off for some reason in Baltimore. But why? We don't know. There are missing days. There, 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 there are several missing days between the time he's last seen getting on that steamer in Richmond and when he is found outside of a polling place in Baltimore, looking very disheveled, wearing clothes that were not his own, and being semi-conscious. You know, one of the things you always hear about Poe is that Poe died drunk in the gutter. 
Uh, no part of that sentence is true. We don't know that he had been drinking. There's no actual proof that he was inebriated, but that was the cause of his stupor when he was found. And he was certainly not found in the gutter. He was found sitting uh, somewhat upright on a plank, which was between two, uh, two barrels, outside of a polling place. So he was taken to a hospital. He lingered for several days. And on the morning of October 7th, he died. Hope you enjoyed all of our excerpts from Historians Podcast. By the way, the Historians Podcast Fund Drive is underway. You may donate online. You can find the link on our website, bobcudmore.com, or send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, a special highlights edition. I'm Bob Cudmore.